I would venture to say that the extent to which your heart resonates with that song you just heard, to that extent, your passion for the nations will be inflamed. It's only as we have a sense of the great mercy shown us, undeserving sinners, that we begin to have our heart beat for the lost who are no less deserving than we. This time I'd like to dismiss our children, kindergarten through second grade, to meet Miss Barbara in the back. And uh, parents, if you're visiting especially, I know it's probably difficult to let your children go, but we promise we'll take good care of them. And you can pick them up in the gym after this service. That's where they'll be. The rest of us are turning your Bibles through Ecclesiastes chapter 11, one of the more philosophical books of the Bible. We're taking a break from 2 Timothy. I'll be back in 2 Timothy next week, so join me next week for 2 Timothy 4. But today we're going to look at Ecclesiastes, and if you understand the book of Ecclesiastes, it's about two perspectives on life. One is called Under the Sun. And under the sun has to do with the the world of humanity without regard to God, his existence, his power, his engagement. It's without any uh, kind of, of perspective from an eternal point of view. And then Ecclesiastes also talks about life under heaven. Life under heaven does yield an eternal perspective. Life under heaven does, in fact, point us to God's perspective. So we have life under the sun, pragmatic atheism, life under heaven, life lived out from the perspective of God in eternity. We are in our last week of our 2020 Global Missions Conference, and and this always brings me back to my conversion. It always brings me back to my sophomore year at Penn State, where for the first time in my life, after committing my life to Christ, I even heard about global evangelization or global missions. You need to know that the the pre-Christ Bob Flayhart was very happy-go-lucky. I know it's hard to believe now, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I just didn't have a care in the world. I, I, I played basketball, and I went to school. And that is all I worried about. And I didn't even think about the nations. Of course, I had no reason to think about the nations. And then I went to my first global missions conference. And it opened up a whole new arena of life. And I began to read missionary biographies. I read Jim Elliott and the shadow of the Almighty and learned about his journaling That's when I really saw a heart, a flame for God, and I began to keep my own journals at that point. And I read Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, and it's all about his uh, missions in China. And uh, William Carey, the father of modern missions and a missionary to India. And another one I read was called Borden of Yale, about William Borden who was born into a very wealthy Christian family, 
Uh, I used to think it was the Borden Dairy family, but it's a completely different Borden. Uh, William Borden's dad made his fortune through silver mining in Colorado. And William Borden publicly professed Christ at an early age. He was a spiritual leader on his high school campus. Uh, Since his parents were people of means, uh, in between high school and college, they sent him on a world tour to many, many nations around the globe. And they knew the impact it would have. He didn't respond in a worldly way. It deepened William's burden for the nations, particularly Muslims in China. William came back and went to Yale his freshman year. At Yale, his father died. And William became a multi-millionaire, but he was crushed at the loss of his father. William was so disappointed in the spiritual climate uh, in Yale. This is about uh, the early 1900s. And uh, he was used to lead prayer groups in a, in a student mission organization. And he decided after graduation that he was going to go to China and work with the Muslims. But he figured, first of all, that he needed to go to Egypt and learn Arabic. So William Borden gave away his entire inheritance burned all of his bridges behind him because he had no intention of ever coming back. Went to Cairo, contracted spinal meningitis, and died at the age of 25, having never made it to the mission field that he believed God had called him to. Tragedy, a waste. It depends whether you're looking at life under the sun, humanistically, with no God and no eternity, or whether you're looking at life under heaven from God's perspective. As Paul Harvey would say, now for the rest of the story. William Borden, through his generosity, his sacrificial living, and even his death, spawned a missions movement among young people that sent thousands to the nations. There's no waste in God's providence. And we need to be reminded to look at life from the perspective of under heaven. The last week of global missions, we always take up what is called our faith promise. If you're new to Oak Mountain, or if you've never even considered uh, giving a faith promise to global missions, uh, let me show you briefly what I believe it is. Faith promise is a faith-oriented intention to give above and beyond your tithe to the task of engaging the nations with a surprising power of grace through Oak Mountain. This faith-oriented intention is based on God's promise to provide for your needs, trusting His power to use your gift 
to create a ripple effect of fruitfulness in your life, in your church, and the world. That's what it means to make a faith promise, to make a promise based on God's promise as we look at life under heaven. Let's all stand as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. This is God's Word. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Confusing? Perhaps, but we'll unfold it together. This is God's word, his inerrant, inspired, infallible, and authoritative word. And he gave it to us because he wants us to cast our bread upon the waters, which means he longs for us to reap generously as we sow generously. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and we do ask that you would soften our hearts, open our ears. Lord, if a guy like, like William Borden, by your grace, could give all, make us willing to give some. In Jesus' name, amen. Go and have a seat. So why does Oak Mountain practice faith promise? Two reasons. First of all, when we allow more buckets of giving, God's people just end up by his grace giving more. In, in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 3, it says the Macedonians, the Greeks, gave beyond their ability. Well, how can you possibly do that? How can you give beyond your ability? Well, you give by faith and God provides what you didn't think you could give. The second reason why we practice faith promise is we believe so deeply and passionately in global evangelization, that, that ultimately that's why we're here. We are here to bring the gospel to the nations. Every single one of us, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, doesn't matter what our vocation is, somehow we never can let the nations be out of our vision. And we believe by having a faith promise commitment to give financially to global evangelization that it sets missions apart. It actually elevates missions above other ministries because we believe ultimately every ministry is geared to global evangelization. So that's why we use faith promise. So three ripple effects of faith promise, uh, three ways that our faith promise will lead to ripple effects. First of all, live missionally by practicing carefree generosity. Look, if we were to ask ourselves, why is it that we don't give more? One of the reasons would be we're afraid. We're anxious. 
we're worried. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen to my family? Where's the food going to come from? Which is ironic because exactly the thing Jesus in Matthew 6 tells us not to worry about. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothing. Your father knows you need this. See, if we really understand our adoption as sons and daughters of the living God, then we will be more carefree with respect to giving. Look at verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters. Clearly, it's not talking about literal bread, right? Literal bread dissolves. The only experience I have with casting bread on the waters is when I was a little guy, and I was uh, at a lake, and I had some bread, and I threw it out in the water. I saw a bunch of fish coming up and nibbling it, and I thought, well, I'll put some bread on a hook. Guess what happens? We put bread on a hook and throw it in the water. It dissolves before the fish can get on the hook. So you'll see lots of fish. You just won't catch anything. So clearly, it's not talking about literal bread upon the waters. There is a, uh, an Arabic uh, translation of, of the Hebrew, I'm sorry, Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, Hebrew was falling out of use more and more. Uh, fewer and fewer people in the first century were learning Hebrew. And the, the language today was Aramaic. And so Jewish scholars made an Aramaic translation, the, the language of the people, and then they made some commentary as well. Well, the, 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 uh, tar, the um, Targum, which is what it is called, uh, actually has these for the words of Ecclesiastes 11. It says, uh, cast your bread upon the waters, uh, give to those who go in ships on the sea, and you will receive an eternal reward. Interesting. Cast your bread upon the waters from a Jewish perspective had to do with giving to people who go in ships. Now, missionaries today, most of them don't take ships. Until recently, they did. Now they fly. The point is, this passage has been understood historically as casting your material gifts, sowing your material gifts to people who cross the seas. Remember our vision statement? Engaging every neighbor with the surprising power of grace over the fence of our neighbor's backyard, over the mountain into the city of Birmingham, overseas, and then even engaging each other over the pew. But God wants us to be carefree. It, you almost see this, this, I don't want to say nonchalance, I don't want to say irresponsible, but you see this, go for it. Just keep casting your bread on the waters. And notice this, it says it will come back after many days. That's where the Jews and the Targum said it's talking about an eternity. I can't promise you if you give to global evangelization through Oak Mountain by participating in faith promise that God's going to give you the money back. I can't promise you that. Now, I will say I have found, especially with people who make their first time faith promise, God actually does often do something pretty wild. I've just got... Decades of experience is the only thing I can tell you. I can't find a scripture verse for it, but I can tell you my experience has been when somebody here steps out for the first time to make a faith promise, and you don't know where it's going to come from. I have seen so many times 
God do something wild to put you on the hook, to grab you, say, okay, I'm going to do this the rest of my life now. And it's amazing what happens. Then it says, verse 2, give a portion to seven, even to eight. Well, you can tell what God's doing here. He's encouraging even more than you thought. Spread out gifts. Just keep casting them. Keep giving to global evangelization. Keep giving to people who go in ships and airplanes. Keep doing it. You think you can do it to seven? Do it to eight. There's this there's this carefreeness, this, this worry-freeness, there's anxiety-freeness. Why? Because you're a child of the king. You're a child of the God who owns everything. Don't look at your resources to make your faith promise. Look at God's resources. Look at verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, in an evening do not withhold your hand. In other words, when you're young... And your career is just starting out. And you may be married and have kids and you're rubbing two pennies together at the end of the month. Give anyway. Be carefree. And when you're older and you're on a fixed income because you're retired, you feel like you're in the same place as you were when you were newly married with little kids. Give. Whether it's the morning of your life or the evening of your life, keep on sowing seed. Keep Casting your bread upon the waters. This, this, this whole passage is talking about cheerful giving. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 7, we have that famous verse, God loves a cheerful giver. Hey, didn't you love uh, Yotis as he was with us? And be honest now, how many of you, well, how could you not have thought about my impressions of my big fat Greek wedding, Right? Certainly you did, you know? Well, I'm, I got another one for you. You give me word, any word I show you come from Greek. <laughs> Cheerful from Greek, hilaron. Hilaron, hilarious. Cheerful, funny, carefree. So there you go. That's what God calls us to. This hilarity, this, this light-hearted, hilarious cheerfulness. Do not worry. Give. I, I hope you're hearing the Father coaxing you today. It's, it's like we're little children and we don't trust Daddy. And the Father's like, oy vey, come on. You can do this because I will do it. This carefree generosity. Unless you've been on the, another planet, you know what the main events of this week has been. The stock market fell 3,500 points in one week. On Thursday, it fell 1,200 points, the, the, the greatest one-day drop in history. In history. Now, not greatest percentage, but the greatest one-day point drop in history, down for the week over 12%. Why? The coronavirus. Offices are shutting down overseas. My neighbor told me that his worldwide office is shut down for the next month. Michael told me schools in Japan are shut down for the next month. 
Things are shutting down. People are pulling in. They're concerned that manufacturing and demand is going to tank. It doesn't need to change the carefree nature of our generosity. Folks, we are, we are not at the mercies of some impersonal fate here. Now notice, I, I made sure, I know this is a shocker, I made sure we have the Perel things all over the church, right? They're everywhere and use them. But my point is, our carefreeness with respect to generosity doesn't need to depend on how the stock market's doing. It doesn't need to depend on whether there may or may not be a health crisis. Cast your bread upon the waters. Give to seven things, even eight. In the morning sow your seed. At night don't withhold your hand. Be carefree in your faith promise. Then secondly, live missionally by practicing risky generosity. We sort of already talked about this in what I just mentioned, but if you're carefree, you'll be less risk-averse. How many of us are risk-averse in other areas of life? But when it comes to generosity or missions, we're not nearly as risk-averse. We love to be people who, who can calculate everything, don't we? Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. In other words, if we look at the sky, we can tell whether it's going to rain. And if we can tell whether it's going to rain, then we can make decisions based on knowledge. We love knowledge. Knowledge is power. But God's saying we're, we're a bunch of control freaks if we're not careful. If a tree falls to the south or the north, and the place that it falls, there it will lie. You know that. It's not going to replant itself. It's not going to reroot itself. There are certain conclusions you can draw about certain things of life. But the point is, look at verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow. He regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, if you base your entire life on knowledge, 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 knowledge. Now, in your vocation, you may need to. Although I would submit to you that even in your vocation, Jesus Christ ought to be your CEO, right? He ought to be the one you're looking to constantly. You don't separate your spiritual life in your vocational life. But especially when it comes to generosity, God says, quit doing all the calculations. Don't be irresponsible. But, you know, I've even found, and actually, if I'm honest, and most of us qualify for, for being wealthy compared to the rest of the world. But particularly, even the wealthy among us, I've seen uh, that the wealthier someone is, the more proportionately they tend to be control freaks with respect to their money. That, that's just a, a generalization, but, but just like I said earlier, it's over decades of ministry. It, it seems like the wealthier people are, the, the more controlling they are of how they use their money. And I get it, but God doesn't. We are called to make risks in our generosity. In other words, you may not be able to figure out what God's going to use. You may put the pen to the paper. You may look at 
pro-con sheets. You may look at what ministries you think are bearing fruitfulness, and it may flop. And there may be things that you think just are going to be fruitless. And, and God uses them in amazing ways. If you keep observing the wind, put your finger in your mouth and see where the wind's coming from, and then you make decisions, you're probably not going to be as risky in your missional investments as God wants you to be. He's saying, don't let the paralysis of analysis impact your generosity. He's saying that that, uh, there's going to be things we're just not going to know. And at times it's going to seem crazy. Yeah, I understand you know when it's going to rain. And I understand that when a tree falls, it's going to stay there. But if you're always looking at the wind, looking at the sky, looking at the clouds, and trying to make a decision on what you ought to do based on what you see, God's saying, take risks. Live by faith and not by sight. We all know the story, I'm sure, of uh, Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. There was a drought. There was a famine. Elijah meets the widow and says, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm about ready to gather some sticks. I'm going to make a fire. I'm going to use the last bit of my oil and grain. I'm going to make a cake for me and my son, and then we're going to die because that's all we have left. Elijah said, oh, well, good afternoon to you too. And then Elijah says this, tell you what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to use that last bit you have, and I want you to make a cake for me. Not for you, not for your son. I want you to make a cake for me. You can just see the widow doing the calculations. Uh, hmm, We've just met, and you want me to make my last cake for you. What if you don't come through? What if God doesn't come through? You're asking me to take A pretty high risk here. But she did. She gave first to the Lord and worried about God taking care of her. And the oil and the grain didn't stop. And the widow and her son were taken care of until Elijah prayed again. The rain came and the drought stopped. Look, God understands our risk averseness. He does. He gets it. He made the world full of risks. That's what this passage is all about. God's saying, I get your desire to have all this knowledge and understanding, but I work outside of that too. So be responsible. Yes, of course. Not ir- being, being risky doesn't mean irresponsible. It, it means simply taking risks. So live missionally by practic- practicing risky generosity. And then thirdly and finally, if we're carefree, it'll lead to risk. If we risk, it will require surrender. Live missionally by practicing surrendered generosity. Look at verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb, Uh, of a woman having a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You do not know, verse 6, which will prosper, this or that, 
or whether both alike will be good. Again, we tend to make our decisions based on ROI, return on investment. And what this passage is saying is you're not God. Neither am I. You don't know what's going to bring a return on investment. As a matter of fact, you know what this passage teaches is surrender to God of everything because it's His. You know, God doesn't give us um, and then ask us for 10% of our stuff and then a faith promise made from our stuff. God says, it's all mine and you get to be steward of 90 or less percent of it. But it's still mine. And living under, the, under heaven rather than just under the sun means, in fact, that we live as stewards and we surrender all. We surrender to an eternal perspective. Look at verse 2. You do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. What it's saying is cast your bread upon the waters, give to seven, even or eight, because you don't know what disaster is going to come. In other words, just like Jesus says in the parable of the rich man who had so much prosperity that he said, well, I don't have enough room. I need to build newer barns. And then he built the barns and said, now I've got all my uh, riches stored. Now I've got my life in front of me. And God says to the man, you fool, this night your life is required of you. Now who's going to enjoy all this? Again, there's, there's this... There's this carefree, uh, risky orientation where God's saying, you don't know how long you're going to be here. So in light of the brevity of life, just give. Be carefree. Take risks in your generosity. It's a wake-up call is what verse 2 is. And then when it says, you do not, the work of, do not know the work of God, who makes everything, we don't know some things, but we do know many things. Like we know if the clouds are dark, it's going to rain. We know that if a tree falls, it's going to stay. You know what else we know? And please, you, you've got to trust my motives here. I am not trying to increase, well, actually, I am trying to increase our faith promise. I'm not doing it in a manipulative way. But do you know one of the things we know about generosity? We know that God supernaturally chooses the bless the work of the local church. We know that God uniquely works through the local church in a way he doesn't tend to uniquely work through individuals. See, we tend to individualize the Christian life. The New Testament tends to think of our Christian life as a corporate experience. And so again, those of us who are doing the pen to the paper, trying to figure out ROI, trying to make sure we know which ministries are going to be most fruitful and we're getting it all straight and we're going to go ahead and make that gift based on what we want to do, you can do that, of course. In many cases, you're free to do that. But God really only promises great ROI through the local church. That, that's the only organization or organism 
that God has really promised that he's at work in a unique way outside of individualized Christianity. So, for instance, what our brother and sister shared earlier about the refugees. Who could have thought that the 1040 window, 10 degrees latitude north, 40 degrees latitude south, who would have thought that that window that everybody was pouring into because it's the most unreached window in the world, right? It's mostly Muslim, um, unreached. The, the people there are more closed because they're in their homeland. The governments tend to be hostile. And it's even hard for missionaries and ministry partners to get into those countries because of the hostility. And who could have ever known that war was going to cause God to take the 1040 window like a pitcher and pour it into the West. Who could have known that? God knew it all along. And as we surrender ourselves to God's ways, and which would involve making a faith promise through the local church, the God who knows those kinds of things, verse 5, will bless our gifts and we will find it again after many days. It may be in heaven, as our brother shared, and we'll be with every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. It, it may be that God blesses you financially so that you'll be motivated to give more. It may be that your family your children, parents, grandparents. The, the beauty and the joy of training your children to make a faith promise so that the rest of their days, their hearts are aflame for the nations. Don't underestimate the impact that that will have. And, and as you pray for the, na the nations, as you ask God to fill your faith promise, and then when it happens and you get around the dinner table and you share, we prayed this and look what God did. And you can put it in circumstance. Listen, I, I'm a basketball freak. Y'all know that. I made a faith promise years ago with Laurie and somebody offered me uh, SEC championship tickets. Basketball, not football. Basketball gets me more excited than football. Okay, I know you'd have been excited about the football, but I was excited about the basketball. And it turned out the last second, ministry, a ministry thing came up and I couldn't go. So I called him and I said, I tell you what, uh, you gave me these tickets, I can't go. But, but rather than giving them to someone else, could I sell them? Because you could help me uh, fulfill part of my faith promise. And they were just thrilled to hear that. So I, I sold them, we got the kids around, I explained that we had surrendered afresh to God, we had prayed, we got this amount that we felt God wanted us to give to, to missions through Oak Mountain, and God just did this. Kids don't, they don't forget things like that. And guess what? Adults don't either. So as you think about William Borden, he wrote, he wrote three things in his Bible. He wrote these words, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. I'd encourage you to think about writing that in your Bibles. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. 
Under the sun, people think his life was a waste. Under heaven, he became a ripple effect that transformed lives. Why do we give the faith promise? Because God cast his bread on the waters, the bread of life. God cast everything in his son upon the waters. And after many days, it'll all come back to him. And all the people from the ripple effect of the great bread of life falling into the waters of the earth will produce ripple after ripple after ripple that would include us. And then we have the opportunity to be secondary droplets of the bread of life falling into the waters, cast upon the waters. And our lives can have fruitfulness as well. We're going to take up our faith promise uh, uh, intentions. Uh, they should be in your pew backs. Um, if you don't have them, you should have been mailed one. Uh, and uh, before or as the team comes out, we're going to show a video you've seen before. And I want you to think of, of God casting his bread, Jesus, upon the waters. Look at that drop that produces other drops. See yourself in one of those drops and then recognize what your life and faith promise can do to reach the nations.